Sabbath. Welcome back. We are so excited to talk to you as we continue with our camp meeting. Last Sabbath was a high water Sabbath for our community here in Loma Linda. And we hope that as you followed us through our many digital platforms, this was also a high Sabbath for you. But today we continue with our conversations about crucibles. And we're learning, hopefully, how to pray amidst the crucible. And we have an interesting conversation for you. But before we get into it, won't you join me in prayer? God, we want to thank you so much for the capacity you give us to know and to be known. And as we go forth and as we learn how to praise, we pray that our praises, that our songs, that our conversations, that our study of Scripture may be used to glorify you. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. So I am with my colleague and co-host, Joey O. Joey, how are you doing? How have you enjoyed our camp meeting season? Oh, it's I always look forward to camp meeting. I mean, I love the music in our sanctuary services year round, but there's something about camp meeting, all the congregational singing that we get to do, praising God together and um, whenever Doug gets on that harmonica, man, <laughs> mm. it's pretty awesome. I, I really enjoy it. And Heritage was amazing. They were great, weren't they? <laughs> yeah. They were awesome. They, they have still such a, it's really interesting because there's such a big draw, but it's a big draw cross generational. Mm -hmm. And you don't find music groups that have that impact cross generationally. So that was really neat to see all of our different ages coming together in the sanctuary to praise God. Yeah, I remember my parents loved the Heritage <laughs> Singers, and so they would take us to concerts when the Heritage Singers would come by, and I would learn. You know, I would sit there as a child and learn to love the songs, and now I'm doing the same thing with my children mm. and bringing them, and they're learning to love the songs as well. So That's so awesome. That's yeah. so awesome. So we're going to talk today about praising in the middle of crucibles. And as I was kind of thinking about this idea of our capacity for praise as we are living in the midst of a problem, those two seem mutually exclusive. And I'm wondering if our, how do we get into a space in which our default position when we are facing problems is to revert to praise? Because it seems, and we're gonna talk about uh, the example, two places in Paul's life, it seems that this was Paul's default position. As Paul, for example, is in Philippi, uh, in prison, he fills the air in that dark and dank dungeon yeah. with praises. And he is placed in this really uncomfortable position in the situation that is completely unfair. It's unjust. And it's unknowable. Paul has no idea what's going to happen in the future. And yet, even in spite of all these things, his default position is to praise. I know. That's pretty incredible because 
If I imagine myself being put in that position, unjustly imprisoned, not knowing if I'm going to be able to get out, um, put into stocks, it says. Mm -hmm. it, was put in, it was a very uncomfortable position. I don't know if my first instinct would have been to praise. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe prayer, but praising and singing out loud, singing, <laughs> that's pretty incredible. So yeah, that the fact that Paul cultivated this this attitude of praise, this habit of praise throughout his life is, is pretty incredible mm. that it shows up even in those mm. darkest moments. Yeah, I I was so moved by our passage, uh, the first passage that I want to share with us, which is found in Paul's letter to the Philippians, mm. uh, the fourth chapter, as he is getting ready to sign off uh, on this congregational letter. But I, before we get into the text itself, I want to say some things that I think bear saying as far as what praise is not. And praise does not mean acceptance with, the, to, with these circumstances that sometimes might be painful or unfair. To praise something doesn't mean that, or to engage in an attitude of praise, as you mm -hmm. mentioned, doesn't mean that we have to agree with the situation. It doesn't mean that we have to like the situation. And probably most importantly, it doesn't mean that we have to accept the situation. It simply means that we are exhibiting trust and faith. And probably even more important than that, the release of control in a situation that might be painful. Yeah, that's a really that's a really good point, Miguel, because... What Paul engages in and what he advocates for in the book of Philippians is not so much praising the situation, mm -hmm. but praising God mm -hmm. in the midst of the situation, right. right? So the focus of our praise is God and not on whatever may mm -hmm. happen to us, because there's some terrible things that happen to people that I don't think God praises right. the situation. Yeah. Right. And I think that's important. Uh, I think the Christian church, Joey, has gotten into this a rather dangerous territory where we romanticize suffering. Mm. And that probably has to do with a little bit of the history of the church and how the church viewed uh, asceticism and suffering as gifts. And while I don't want to completely dismiss that tradition, I also wanted to point out that maybe it's important that we don't romanticize suffering. Mm. We can we we romanticize as I as you mentioned praise without romanticizing the situations that call us to cry out. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's important that we realize that the God that is being disclosed in the pages of Scripture isn't a God that wills pain. Mm. It's not a God that pushes suffering. It's not a God that prompts us to suffer in order that we may develop stronger spiritual muscles. It's a God that can work through suffering, even if it is not his will that we suffer, and he doesn't praise the circumstances that lead us into suffering. Yeah, 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 that we are not seeking out suffering for ourselves, but the fact of life in the sinful world, there is going to be Correct. some suffering. But in the midst of that, I love how the um, I love how the lesson says it in the beginning. Um, praise is a means of helping us sustain faith, mm -hmm. right? That praise can actually be, or as um, Nehemiah said to his people, 
Um, the joy of the Lord mm -hmm. is your strength. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that in the moments of the crucible, praise can be a, a source of strength, but it doesn't mean that we need to praise the situation. We're right. In, just praising that even in that situation, we know that God is with us. And furthermore, praise doesn't need to follow a strict formula. Mm. So praise, it might look like Paul and Silas at Philippi, yeah. or it might look different. And so we need, I think, to be wise enough to allow for a diverse approaches to praising. Sometimes it is going to be songs that fill a jail cell. Other times, it's going to be difficult questions, questions like the ones that the prophets ask time and time again, how long, O Lord? And sometimes it's going to be disorienting songs, mm -hmm. like uh, the psalmist writes in the book of Psalms. All of these expressions, even the moments where we question and seem to be upset at God, even those are moments of praise because they are alerting ourselves to the possibility that even if we're not okay with what God is doing or what is perceived to be God's inaction, or even if we don't understand God's ultimate design, or even if we don't trust God at that, pre at that precise moment, protest itself can be praise because you are hopefully praying amidst your protest that there is a God who is going to listen to you. Mm. The reason why the psalmist prays these prayers that are heart-wrenching is because he genuinely believes that there is a God who is listening. Wow. Wow, that's, again, you just blew my mind. That protest can be praise mm. because protest, if we're protesting to God, that means we believe that God can do something Correct. about it. If if we didn't actually believe there were, was a God, we didn't believe that he had the power to make change happen, we, there would be no point mm -hmm. of us protesting. So the fact that we lament to God, the fact that we protest to God shows our faith in him. And in that action, we are praising. Him. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. And it shows hope, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and, and that really came clear to me this week as I read. Um, my mind kind of went to probably the most nihilistic book in the whole of Scripture, and it is fast becoming one of my favorites, uh, Kohelet or Ecclesiastes. Basically, that Hebrew word Kohelet, where we get Ecclesiastes from, it simply means the preacher or the teacher. And so if you are to kind of picture in your mind what Ecclesiastes is about, it's a sermon. And I don't know how many times you have started a sermon, Joey, where you say, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Um, and so the opening lines of that message seem a little disorienting mm. until you realize that if the author really believed everything was meaningless, then there would be no point for the sermon itself. <laughs> so the fact that the author is actually writing these things down and delivering this message to his people is in and of itself a powerful nod to praise even in what seems to be meaningless situations. Wow. Wow. So the fact that he actually writes something <laughs> and communicates something means that he doesn't really, he hasn't really fully given up hope and right. thought that everything is meaningless. Yeah. Wow. Well, let's get into Philippians, shall we? So the lesson talked a little bit about the fourth chapter, and I think it's a passage that is well known 
by most people that read the New Testament um, because we use it quite oftenly. We don't, quite often, we don't look at the whole passage, and so we're going to try to do that uh, today. We typically only look at verse 4, which says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say, Rejoice again. That seems if we only leave that there, if we are to extrapolate some theology out of Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, I don't know if that's possible. Is it possible, I guess I would start by saying by asking, to rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. Hmm. I guess it comes down to what we what we believe Paul means by rejoice. Mm-hmm. I love what you said at the beginning, how that our praise takes on different forms in different contexts, right? And so if rejoice is always like being filled with happiness Mm -hmm. and smiling and just like, God, you are so great in this moment. You are just, you've shown me your goodness and greatness and just be overflowing and with with our praise for him. I don't think that's possible. Mm. I, I could be wrong. There may be some people mm. out there that I can do that. But in my life, I, I haven't seen that because yeah. there are times when I don't feel that, number one. But number two, I don't even express that because that's just not in, that's not real to the space that I'm mm-hmm. in. That doesn't mean though that I don't still believe that God is good, that I don't believe that God is still great, even in those moments. Um, it just means that I may not praise in that mm. same form. Mm. I don't know. I, I love what you just said. Um, and, and it seems like you're hinting about and towards this expression of authenticity in our walk with God. And so I think it all boils down to what uh, we value the most. And so we can say, well, rejoice means that I need to be happy all the time. And if that's the standard, then I am going to have to be inauthentic sometimes because let's face it, like in any other relationship, there is this side of Eden, no relationship that is going to be contention free. Contentiousness is a part of human relationships. Uh, I love my wife deeply. Sometimes I'm not that happy with her. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. And the ability to kind of recognize that and say, what we value here more than kind of these blithe statements of what a healthy marriage is supposed to be is authenticity. Mm -hmm. I think that speaks to a way of looking at this uh, particular passage in a healthier way, and maybe even in a way that is closer to what Paul is trying to write to the Philippians. Yeah, it seems like Paul is more talking about a pervasive attitude mm-hmm. or perspective than in a, than a particular form of action of mm-hmm. praise, right? That he 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 lives with this attitude of gratitude, mm. right? That he has this a mindset that that I am grateful for what God is doing mm. for me, even in the midst of pain. I can remember those times when God came through for me, mm-hmm. right? I may not feel, be feeling his presence right now, but I remember mm-hmm. how how God was with me mm-hmm. throughout other periods. And so I trust that God is with mm-hmm. me even in the midst of this, just like he was in, when he was in prison with, with Silas, that he remembered all those other times that God came through for him. 
And God did come through for Paul in some dramatic fashions and, and the other people that Paul knew, like Peter, he rescued Peter from prison. Right. Right. So Paul had to believe if that was God's will, God would also rescue him from prison. So, so there is this, there's this attitude of gratitude that pervades the way that he approaches life mm -hmm. because he's able to remember that. Yeah. And I think that's closer to what Paul is actually going to say. And that gives you, well, let's put a pin on that and let's read verse five. Because sure. I think it's, it's, it's what you, I want to comment on what you just said, because I think it's so important that we look at it. So Paul says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. And up to this point, we're having some real problems with Paul's standard. Because not only do I have to be joyful all the time, but I also have to be a non-anxious presence all the time. <laughs> and I, I, find it to, I find it easier to be joyful than it is to be non-anxious. Mm. Because there are so many things in my particular life that still cause me anxiety. Mm. And then I think about what you just said, and that is, we're not talking about individual moments in your life. We're not talking about uh, for, the for the mother who doesn't know what's going on with her children and just sent them to school the, uh, this year for the first time. We're not telling her, don't be anxious about that. No. We're not telling the father who has uh, just lost his job, don't be anxious about that. What we're talking about is, as you mentioned, I think rightly so, you, the overall tenor of your life, how you are orienting your life is an attitude of cheerful disposition to whatever may come. Mm, that's right. Yeah. So, and, and that, that, that's key because it doesn't just come from, um, just imagining that everything is okay. Right. He says the reason that your gentleness and evident um, gentleness is evident to all that you can rejoice in the Lord always that you can be anxious about nothing but about you don't have to be anxious about anything is that the Lord is near right mm -hmm. so that's why in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your requests to God so it's this it's the firm faith that God is near that allows that anxiety that attitude of of um, non-anxiety to pervade our, our existence. Mm. Yeah. And then immediately I'm thinking, okay, well, Paul has just given us the perfect antidote to anxiety and to sorrow. Mm -hmm. The perfect antidote to anxiety and to sorrow is to present our requests to God because God is going to answer and fulfill them. Right? <laughs> Wrong. Notice that that's not what Paul is saying. Paul isn't saying present your request with thanksgiving because God is going to grant you the desires of your heart. Mm -hmm. But rather, it says, in the peace of God, mm -hmm. which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So at no point is Paul being Pollyannish. Mm -hmm. He's not promising an easy path from Jerusalem to the new holy city. He's not promising a discipleship journey that is going to be free of tribulations. He is not promising us a pain-free Christian experience and walk. He's not promising that God is always going to answer our petitions and requests in the way that we think our petitions and requests ought to be answered. 
He is promising peace. And apparently what he's saying is that this peace is completely independent from our current circumstances and situations. Wow. Wow. So that even if we don't know if God is going to come through in the ways that we want, we can still be peaceful Mm -hmm. in the moment of the crucible. I mean, it reminds me of um, Daniel's friends, Mm -hmm. right? His three friends, as they are about to be thrown into the fiery furnace, and they say to the king, to King Nebuchadnezzar, "You can do this," and we, but we know that God has the power to deliver us if He wants to. But even if He doesn't, even if He doesn't deliver us, we we will trust in Him, mm-hmm. and that 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 is that same faith that seems to pervade Paul and what he's calling the Philippians to is the trust that that despite what may happen to us, we know that God. God's presence is enough to keep Mm. us from being anxious. And what I love is this peace transcends understanding, Mm -hmm. right? So not only is the peace being comfortable with leaving uh, the situations that we don't have control over into whatever hands they need to be left into, but also that we don't need to understand why things are happening. Mm -hmm. And I find this so refreshing because so often our primary reaction to the crucible is to try and either understand the crucible or explain the crucible. Mm. We often as pastors and as people who get to journey with uh, other people in moments of crucible, the question that we get asked the most is why? Mm. Why is this happening? And it's really tempting to answer that question with whatever rationale we've come up with in the moment or whatever rationale makes us feel better. Two things I I would say to that. First off, we're not smart enough to figure out what's going on on planet Earth. And we should know we're pretty smart people. The second thing, and probably the more important thing, um, because the first was a bit facetious, is when it comes to moments of crucible, the real question that people are asking isn't why. The real question that people are asking is where. We often think that when people are going through painful experiences and they ask, why is this happening, that they need us to rationalize that for them. They need to, we need to rationalize that for them because somehow, some way, this formulaic answer is going to provide them peace. The real, the reality is even if we had the answers, Mm -hmm. giving those answers at that moment isn't going to provide peace. Mm -hmm. But the real question most people I, I have a feeling are asking is where is God? Mm -hmm. And I think that question Paul can answer emphatically. Paul knew where God was while Paul delivered, uh, while while Christ delivered Peter from prison, while Jesus and God delivered Paul from the shipwreck, while, while God delivered Paul from prison at Philippi, and when God didn't deliver Paul as he stood before Nero and was executed, God, Paul knew where he was in all of those different scenarios. And that was, he was right there with them. And so I think 
We might not be able to answer the why question, but we are able to answer the where question, aren't we? We are able to say, he's right here. And we don't understand, but we can affirm the presence of God even in the midst of the crucible. Oh, that's so powerful. That the question that people are really asking when they ask why is where? Mm -hmm. Where is God in all this? Does he care mm -hmm. about me? And his answer emphatically is the Lord is near, mm. right? And I love what Randy said in his message on suffering this past mm -hmm. Sabbath during um, worship was that God, that we also, as his people, have the incredible privilege of being God's presence mm -hmm. for others. So that when suffering happens and people are asking where, we get to be the presence of God and to be near. Mm. And that is such a powerful presence that the fact that his people can draw near to those who are suffering and be stand-ins for God, being physical manifestations mm -hmm. of God's already present presence that is near, that we get to be that and do that for others. And like Randy said, it's not about answering questions. Mm -hmm. And like you were just saying right now, it's not really about answering quest questions or saying the right thing. It's just being there to show you care. Mm -hmm. That's what people need the most. Yeah. Yeah. I think... In order to do that, we need to let go, though, of our discomfort. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about this, I think, this whole quarter. Mm -hmm. As human beings, we reject suffering because suffering makes us uncomfortable. And the yeah. reason why suffering makes us uncomfortable, I think, is intuitively we know something's wrong with it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't align with the way we think the world is supposed to work. And sometimes in order to try to mitigate that discomfort, mm. we set out on the wrong journey because we are trying to answer, as you just said, the wrong question. Mm. And so maybe the only thing that we can do when we are confronted by someone that we love and we care about that is experiencing suffering is, as you said, simply be that non-anxious presence uh, that says, hey, I don't have any answers. I have the same questions you do, but we're going to be here together yeah. until, until the pain passes. And here's the truth. Mm -hmm. Regardless of what has happened, the pain will pass. Mm -hmm. um, the moment uh, the crucible will pass. It's a matter of when. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I love that, that idea that it's only a matter of time. Mm -hmm. Whether it's whether we're healed tomorrow, or we're healed during the resurrection, mm -hmm. whether we are united with our loved ones that we lost today, or it happens at the resurrection, it will happen. That we can guarantee. It's just a matter of time. Yeah. So it's a matter of when, mm -hmm. and not just if. Yeah. yeah. And I love that that our discomfort, what you were saying, that our discomfort with the suffering, our discomfort with the reality that there is suffering and there is something wrong, it leads us to either try to understand it or to undo it. But God in instead calls us to do what he does, which is to be that non-anxious mm -hmm. presence in the midst of it, even if we can't undo it and we can't understand it, just to be there for people. Mm -hmm. So my question then is, how do we be that? How do we be that for ourselves? Like, how do we be that non-anxious presence? How do we be that um, praising, mm. grateful presence in the midst of suffering and pain, um, either 
either if it's happening to us or it's happening to others, how do we, how do we attain that attitude of gratitude? Mm. Well, I think you started to give us an answer already. Um, and I think uh, that shows how clever you are because you set a question up that you were already answering way back at the beginning. <laughs> I, I, you, you did say, I think, something really profound a few minutes ago, and that was that what Paul drew upon was his experience, right? Mm. Paul had the capacity to, even in the midst of the crucible, to have a long memory. Mm. And I find that one of the biggest realities that suffering makes us come in contact with is how short-term our, our memory tends to be. Yeah. Um, we have this experience and we say, this, it's never going to get better. And, um, and so I think Paul's capacity to draw upon the past, and not just his mm. past, Yeah the whole history of God with his people. I think that was extremely helpful. Mm. So maybe for you uh, individually, which is the first part of, I think, your question, is going back to what you said, to have that capacity to train ourselves, to have the capacity for long memory. Mm. Um, wow. Because there's, a, there's an old African proverb that says that if, uh, if the if the hunters are the only ones who tell the story, then the lions are forever silent. <sighs> and we want uh, the lions to be able to tell their story. So we need to have long memories. But then the question becomes, okay, so I remember God's history, not only with me. And again, you're watching the show because some moment at some time, and we're speaking here because at some moment, somehow we have a history with God. Mm. So we draw upon that, and that makes us feel more grounded. Now the question becomes, how do I become that non-anxious presence, that, that grounding presence for others? And again, the answer is, as you noted cleverly, we look at our, our history. Mm. Not only do we all have a history with God, but because we're humans, we all have a history with suffering. Mm -hmm. So think about those moments in which you have suffered. Think about those moments in which you are suffering. And then try to remember the interactions that made those moments more palatable. Mm. And I would bet, although I'm an Adventist and I typically don't bet, I would bet that your memory is going to go to somebody hugging you without saying anything, to somebody non-judgmentally listening to you break down and share your questions and your doubts, to somebody remembering after all the support system has retreated to their real normal lives and somebody comes up to you and says, I know it's been a while, how are you doing? Mm. Or how about someone, somebody remembers to do such menial tasks as, hey, do you need help picking up the kids from school? I know you're struggling. Mm -hmm. Or, hey, here's a meal train that, we're, that we are set up. I bet you that most of, those, of the moments that became more meaningful to you in these crucible experiences are of people that simply were people, people mm -hmm. that cared that they weren't brilliant theologians or that they weren't people that could explain away the mystery of evil, of evil, 
but they were simply people who cared. And so I think that's how we we become that grounding presence for somebody else. We draw mm. upon our story with God, and we also draw upon our story with suffering. Wow, that's so powerful. And it's interesting that you said that I set that up from the very beginning. I wish I was that clever. <laughs> so if it were, if it happened, I think it's mm -hmm. a God thing. But yeah, hey, I'm... you don't have to. You, I know that we're pastors, but this is in a confessional space. Pastor Joey is clever. He had this plan from the very beginning. Very beginning. It's in my notes somewhere. <laughs> uh, no, but I love what you said. How you put it that the long memory, the importance of long memory. Our long memory, because a lot of times, we're, especially in the midst of the crucible, we have very short memories, right? We're so focused on what's happening with us right now and to us right now. It's hard to remember what happened to us before, mm -hmm. right? So that that long, the practice of long memory and then also being that positive memory for other people mm -hmm. and creating those memories for other people when we're the presence of God. I think that is so powerful. It Actually, as you were talking, it reminded me of a, of a study that... Um, Stephen Acor, he's a professor at um, at Harvard. He 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 writes about how gratitude has this profound impact on humans' lives, and he cites this study where um, uh, these researchers asked people to take five minutes a day to list three things that they were grateful mm. for, just five minutes a day, and but it had to be the same time every single day, and they had to list three things, write them down. That they were grateful. It didn't have to be big things. It could be small things like my daughter hugged me today or um, somebody smiled at me today. Right. Just three things they were grateful for. And just to do that for a week. And then after a week, they could stop. Some people continued on. Uh, other people stopped. Mm -hmm. And what they discovered was. One month later, those people were happier and more peaceful than those in the control mm. group who didn't practice that. A, a week, a month, so a month later, even those people who had stopped practicing that after just one week, they were happier and more peaceful. Incredibly, three months later and six months later, that still, that trend still held that those people that practiced just one week of gratitude uh, were happier and they were more at peace with the world than those people who hadn't. The power, power of long memory and what he points to and what research, what those researchers pointed to was that practice that began over that week must have continued unintentionally for a longer period of time. That that one practice of 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 actually intentionally a week of intentionally thinking of things to be grateful for made them more. Um, likely to see things that are more that they needed mm -hmm. to be grateful for and to repeat that throughout their lives, mm -hmm. even though it was unintentional from that point on. And so that's that power, power of, of that practice of praise and gratitude. So it makes me think that the reason why God calls us to praise and to be thankful is not because he wants it, but because we need it. That's so powerful. I told you Pastor Joey was brilliant. <laughs> Yes. It, it's not like God is saying, hey, praise me, praise me, praise me, praise me. Is It's that in the end, it makes sense. So you were speaking and we think about this term that is very much in vogue right now with uh, therapists and people that are doing trauma care and grief recovery. And it all has to do with reframing. That's a really popular term that um, is 
being bantered around. And I love it because it's it's true. Um, your capacity to reframe link links intimately with your capacity to withstand trauma and to be resilient. So there's there's a close connection between resiliency and tempered resiliency and your ability to reframe. Now, how do you reframe? Well, I think what you're saying is you remember and remembering leads to reframing, mm -hmm. which then concludes with resiliency. Mm -hmm. And that's what God wants to develop. God wants to develop resilient human beings. Yeah. We cannot develop resiliency if we don't have the capacity to remember. And perhaps that's why one of the oldest spiritual disciplines that sadly doesn't get practiced as much as it, it used to is this idea of journaling. Mm -hmm. This idea of writing down your experiences unfiltered with God and then concluding with a, with a line of praise. They used to do this at Benedict monasteries all the time. In all things, I will praise you. And so when you would get into these crucibles, what you, you actually had something palpable, something material that would aid you in the process of reframing. And sadly, uh, whether it's because our... Uh, our life and our society isn't as connected with the power of pen and paper. Uh, we've we've stopped that spiritual practice a bit. I think regaining it and reintroducing it to our spiritual lives might have a really positive, um, yeah, it might have a really positive effect in our ability to reframe. After all. What are what is this that we're reading, if not a journal where Paul is saying, hey, these are the things that happened to me um, and we will continue praising God amidst and in spite of them. Uh, that's so powerful journaling, because as we have all experienced, our, our memories are very faulty and they're strongly influenced by what's happening to us now. Right. Right. So having that journal that gives us perspective is so powerful. And I. I love that. Just having a physical journal that we've written down, not only our challenges and experiences that happen, but also um, the the joys, the praises that we write down to God in the moments as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to conclude our time together, Joey, by maybe getting into a uh, the second piece of our uh, of our lesson here. So we talked a little bit about Paul's letter to the Philippians. Mm. I think Paul is writing this from an experience that he has at Philippi. Mm. And uh, the lesson talks a little bit about that experience in the 16th uh, chapter of uh, the book of Acts. Um, Paul goes uh, to Philippi and the beginning of the journey seems to be full of promise. Lydia actually uh, is converted at Philippi. And then um, something happens. Mm. Uh, Paul and Silas meet a young damsel. The damsel uh, starts kind of repeating this mantra. Uh, these two are servants of the Most High who shows unto us the way of salvation. And she keeps repeating this. Uh, Paul knows that uh, she is, practices the art of divination. And so he casts the spirit mm. uh, of divination out of her. And this obviously angers 
uh, the people who own this woman, this woman, because they've lost uh, quite a bit of income, and so they uh, conjure up a mob, and the mob throws Paul and Silas in prison. I think part of our spirit. So this is Paul in practice. This is what's happening practically. What is leading Paul to write uh, this story? And I, I read this story again, and I was just stunned with the level of unfairness and injustice that kind of bleeds through the page as you're reading the story. We, I think, don't have a problem with crucibles or don't have as big a problem with crucibles that are a result of our own making. Mm. So if I did something and here I am in a jam because of my decisions, it elicits grace from people, but I, I don't think it disturbs people as much. People yeah. simply chalk it up to bad decisions. But there is something, or at least there are two ideas that seem at first to conflict. There's the idea of fairness, injustice, mm -hmm. and the idea of suffering. And when, when we perceive this suffering as a direct result of something that we don't think is fair, I think that's where we get uncomfortable. And that's where we get in, pro in, in problems. What I find fascinating is at no point, um, at least in the beginning of the story, as Paul and Silas are dragged into prison, at no point does Paul or Silas talk about this issue of fairness mm, and so justice. True. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, and there's unfairness that bleeds, like you said, throughout this whole passage, because the whole situation of this woman was also very unfair. Mm -hmm. Paul and Silas are the only ones who see her as a as a mm -hmm. human, as a child of God who who deserves to be freed and redeemed. And they do this right thing, and everybody else is angry because they see her as property. And as as a result of of their actions of doing good, right? Like they did good for God, they're thrown into prison. Mm -hmm. Not only thrown into prison, but they're beaten, mm -hmm. right? And Paul, again, unfairness. <laughs> He's a Roman citizen who can't be beaten without a fair trial and right. yet he he undergoes all of that thrown into prison isn't given a fair trial at all and is put overnight in stocks and yet their first instinct is to pray and to sing praises mm. to god it's just a it's it's just a powerful juxtaposition of again i think of what we were talking about before that his habit of seeing things, of reframing mm -hmm. situations like you talked about, of going through injustice and still reframing them so that he, they could, he could see how God is still present in the midst of it. Not that that's, this situation is good or just, but see that God was still working in the midst of it, even though he didn't know how, mm -hmm. um, allowed him to continue to praise even in that situation. Yeah. Well, that's, but I love what you just said. Um, and again, snuck in the answer to the question before uh, before I'm going to ask it. So now I'm going to ask it knowing that the answer is there. Um, you said their first reaction, their default position is prayer, petition, and praise. Mm. But that's not their only reaction. Because verse 35, when it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order. By the way, by this point, 
Paul and the jailer, I'm assuming Paul, Silas, and the jailer are close, close buddies, um, released those men. The jailer, uh, the jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can go. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, yeah. even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Yeah. Let them come themselves out and escort us. Mm -hmm. Just because prayer and praise is your first instinct and your first reaction, it doesn't mean it's your only reaction. Yes. And so I think before we end, I also wanted to make sure that we touched on this issue. Mm -hmm. To have an attitude of gratitude is not the same as to engage in self-flagellation or our own victimization. Mm. Gratitude does not rob us of our agency. Mm. And I love this story because even in the midst of gratitude, you have Paul exercising his agency. Yeah, that's so powerful because he does speak up for himself. Mm -hmm. He does stand up for himself. He doesn't allow the government to just roll over mm -hmm. him, steamroll over him, right? He, he wants to make a point. But he does it in a way that continues to bring glory to God, right? It's not just for himself, but also for others that he does this. So, um, so this, this, by doing this, he shows publicly what he stands mm -hmm. for, who he is, and all gives more credibility to the message of Christ, mm -hmm. right? So, I, I love, I love how Paul goes about this. Um, and even in that midst of when when the earthquake happened and the the um, the stocks opened, I mean, a lot of I, I if I were in Paul's situation, I would have thought that's that's God rescuing mm -hmm. me, so it's time to escape, <laughs> right? And yet Paul remains, and not only Paul and Silas remain. I don't know how they convinced they the other got everyone else to stay. Yeah, <laughs> I, I it doesn't describe how that happened. I don't. I, I mean, if I were the yeah. other prisoners, I mean, why would you stick around? I mean, how, what did he say? How could he possibly convince them to stick around and and remain e even when freedom was mm. was open to them? I I don't I don't know how that happened. I think that goes back again. This is, by the way, becoming a theme in our show today. Mm -hmm. Joey gave us the answer to that a couple minutes ago. We're just going to have to rewind the tape. <laughs> Joey, you said we have the gift, God's gift to us, mm -hmm. is that we get to represent him in moments of the crucible. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, if we're being serious about that, if, if we're being honest about that, mm -hmm. then that means that as representatives of God, we get to escort people to the throne of mercy and grace, not in some distant future far away, but today. Mm. Could it be possible that Paul and Silas have done that which you stated in such a way and to such a degree that that prison has become heaven? Mm. Wow. Wow. Well, I'm glad that you have a longer memory than I do. I've been practicing the long memory. For <laughs> I have. <more> than I <laughs> have. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's powerful. That that 
by their actions, by the way, by that whole attitude of gratitude, by the habits that they had formed, the presence of God was so evident in Paul and Silas that that prison was transformed to heaven because heaven really is about God being there. Mm -hmm. Heaven is only heaven because God is mm -hmm. there. If God was not present and Satan was ruling heaven, it would no longer yeah, be heaven anymore. Be heaven. That would be hell, yes. right? So it is God's presence that makes a place heaven and even a prison can be mm -hmm. heaven if we are remaining connected to him. So then that leaves us with a huge amount of responsibility. Mm. We are going back to two things that it seems like we say every week. Mm. You are called not to display unwavering faith in the crucible. You are called to make heaven out of the crucible, mm. to construct a slice of paradise in the midst of the crucible. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean you are robbed of your agency. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you have to always be cheery. It mm -hmm. doesn't mean you have to like what's happening to you. Mm. But it does mean that when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, we are, at, we are actually praying in the present tense. Yeah. And one way to do that, one way to get there so that we can, in the midst of the crucible, make heaven happen is, like you said, to practice long memory, mm -hmm. to engage in those practices where we take the time to intentionally remember those, those instances where God was present for us, those moments where God is blessing us. Do that over time so that we are able to see his presence even in the midst of the crucible. Well, Joey, I think there are no more questions for us to answer, at least this Sabbath. We might have some more next week. But until then, will you pray us as we conclude? Our good and gracious God, we want to thank you so much for being present for us. Even when it's hard for us to sense that you are there, for us to see evidence that you are there, you are, you are as Paul writes, the Lord is near. So help us to... In times when we are not in the crucible, be intentional about looking for those moments, remembering those moments that you are near, maybe even writing them down in a journal so that in the midst of the crucible, we can have that long memory and remember that you are the God who always sticks near is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so if you are experiencing a crucible, we don't have any answers, but we're here and we'll be here until Jesus comes. God bless you and have a fantastic rest of your Sabbath and a blessed week. Mm -hmm.